0: All right. We are live with David Page. Hello, Mr. Page.
1: Hello, sir. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I think this is the part where I'm supposed to say subscribe to the podcast, but we'll just say that now and then move on. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. And the reason I'm excited to talk to you is because you're you you uh, you're very fascinating to me for a number of reasons. You've worked in network news. You've worked in, a, uh, in an area... Uh, you know, you, I, I've, I've read about you a little bit. I've heard some of the things that you've done, uh, particularly in Europe and, and working for ABC and NBC. So I definitely have a lot of questions about that. And then Diners, Drives and Dives is by far my favorite food show of all time. Like when Glad I go travel... It. What's that?
1: Glad to hear it. Yeah, I when I go travel... Well, I left after the 11th season, so I have no idea what it's like now.
0: Well, Well, I'll tell you what, when I... When I go traveling now, I if I'm in a new city, I watch YouTube videos of Diners, Drivers, and the Dives to decide where I'm going to eat. I ate That's my way to idea. Hawaii, L.A., San Francisco multiple times. Um, you know, so uh, I, I saw that you guys did the squeeze in here where I'm from in Sacramento, which is
1: one of my – I was reasons. physically present for that shoot, so it must have been the first year because I didn't go on the road after the first season. Um, and they, they were, my understanding is they were in the middle of an, uh, an ADA issue and they actually had to move. Is that correct? They did. So yeah. shot at the old place. Yeah. That
0: place was so much fun. I, I went to the old place. So it's just this little place that had like six stools, people out the back and,
1: and uh, I I learned, I learned a cooking technique there, which is melting cheese on top of something by throwing ice cubes into the pan and then putting a dome on it. Yeah. So the steam from the ice is, is what um, loosens, softens the cheese. I yeah. do that with all sorts of things all the time now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The cheese skirt's famous. Yeah. I take my, I take my, uh, my boys there and, uh, that's the end of the day. Once we eat it, it's, yeah. Well, we have
1: to take a nap. <laughs> I have some sort of special big deal drink too. Uh, I don't know Maybe about it. It's been drink? a milk? I don't know. It's been, it's been a while. Everything
0: they do is gigantic. I mean, the pit, yeah. the burgers are huge, the tacos are great. It's all just full of grease and it's, it, the cool thing is is they took the entrance of the old of the old place and they moved Water it away. to. The new place. Yeah, so Good. you can actually sit within it if you if you choose. so it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, you know what talking about you, first, I want to get a little bit about your background. Where were you born?
1: Uh, I was born in Queens, New York. And my parents moved to Long Island. Notice I'm a Long Islander in that respect because I called it Long Island. (laughs) And then decided they wanted to raise their kids outside the New York City bubble. So when I was in fourth grade, we moved to a relatively small town in Massachusetts called Greenfield. My father was the dean of the community college there. And I did my growing up uh, 12 miles south of the point at which New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts come together. It was lovely. Pardon me. Plus, uh, as a teenager, uh, the drinking age was lower in Vermont, and there was no alcohol tax in New Hampshire. So if you wanted to risk your life on the highways, um, everything was where it ought to be. (laughs) Nice. Awesome. So, um, and growing up, did you always
0: want to be involved in TV or did that come later?
1: You know what's funny? I remember driving in from Long Island to see one of our sets of grandparents, and WNEW radio was on, and they were the big middle of the road radio station of their time. And a noted disc jockey, William B. Williams, was on. And I couldn't have been more than, I don't know, 10 at the time, maybe. Yeah, probably 10. And William B. Williams made a joke, and I said to my father, I want to do that. And he said, no, you don't. That's He looked down on it. But I retained the broadcasting bug. I actually picked my prep school. I was a day student. Uh, The school was close to where we lived. I picked my prep school, unbeknownst to my parents, because it had a carrier current radio station. And, And that's why I wanted to go there and then i you know uh when i was i don't know 14 or 15 as every one of my generation in radio and then tv did i got my my weekend job at the little local radio station in town where uh, mom and dad had to drive me to and from work uh and then it went from there uh i followed jobs across the country did not pay a lot of attention to college, which I probably there's some things I could have learned in college that I didn't. But I ended up chasing radio jobs um, across Oklahoma and then into Kansas. Um, and in Kansas, in Wichita, I made the switch to television, became a reporter on a local radio station there, and really looked resplendent in my. Light blue polyester leisure suit with red counter stitching, as I did my stand-ups. But <laughs> don't worry, I had silver platform shoes to match. Um, <laughs> I then I, I followed some more jobs. Um, I focused in on investigative reporting. Um, oh, well, why, what, to, what drove you to that? Woodward and Bernstein. I was of the right age, and, and Watergate had become the thing, and that's what I decided I wanted to do for no good reason other than when I started doing it, um, I loved it. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I, did that at a TV station in uh, Phoenix and then a TV station in Atlanta and then a TV station in Houston. And, uh, along the way I had done some freelance producing for NBC and an opportunity came up and I was hired to become a producer out of the Chicago Bureau which I did for a couple of years. Then they sent me to Europe. And I lived in London, and then I lived in Frankfurt, and then I lived in Budapest, covering Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And it was the perfect time to be there. In fact, the reason I I was sent to Budapest was to prepare for the obviously upcoming collapse of communism. So I, I got to cover all of the revolutions, some more serious than others uh and i walked through the berlin wall the night it opened i mean it, it was a remarkable opportunity Then i came back to the states and show produced so that's amazing you know i often i'm a big rocky
0: fan so i i wonder how many people give sylvester stallone credit for knocking out ivan drago and causing that wall to fall
1: you know yes <laughs> well it was he he clip. well <laughs> to some extent i'm the reason you saw it i i <laughs> ran up to the wall as things were going nutty that night with a huge ladder so that my crew could get up to the top of the wall and shoot down. The ladder was immediately wrestled from my grasp. Once they were up by a bunch of happy Germans who all climbed up to the top of the wall and were dancing around. So I'm the reason you saw those Germans dancing around. Man, that's, that's amazing. Did
0: you, so, I mean, you had to know at the time as that was happening, that you're, you're literally standing in the middle of history.
1: You don't think about that when, when it happens. I mean, you got a job to do. You you got time codes to write down as your cameraman is shooting important stuff that you're going to have to cut on deadline. You you, I know you do your job.
0: Mm. When you look back and you reflect on that, though, do you do you think, wow? I mean, does that I mean, does it kind of uh, euphoric a little bit to think that you were? Sure. To- look,
1: I was very lucky. I got, uh, I mean, more than the Berlin Wall, to some extent, was was running our coverage in Bucharest of the Romanian Revolution. Because yeah. that, that was about? an ongoing story and it involved, um, you know, actual bang-bang. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, that to me felt far more epical because of the overthrow of Ceausescu. And I had been one of the few journalists allowed into Romania less than a year earlier they were trying to open up to the west at at that time they were one of the three most closed countries in the world along with north korea and albania and they were trying to get some positive western coverage because they thought it was time to be less cloistered so they invited some journalists in for their annual party conference and put on a big dog and pony show and you know took us around and showed us stuff but, and boasted that they're the main, the big street in Bucharest was a foot or something whiter than the Champs-Élysées. I mean, it was a very weird time. But I had already been in that country and, and seen that it was truly screwed up. I mean, everybody was an informant on everybody just to get enough food or money to stay alive. Mm. Um, and, and covering that revolution was, uh, that was a big deal. Uh, that was yeah, deal.
0: Yeah. Sounds like it. Now, I also think I read I read a little bit about you before you came on, and you suggested that you were actually working before the wall fell, kind of behind the iron curtain on the other side.
1: Oh, right. I've been doing that a lot. Sure. Yeah. Um, we routinely worked in East Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, we routinely worked in, you know, um, the Soviet Union at the time, East Germany, uh, Czechoslovakia, as the country was then called before it, it split up. Uh, it was a good place to work because of the beer. Budweiser, uh, <laughs> Budavici or Pilsner Urquell, in your little refrigerator in your hotel room. Um, yeah, I'd spend a fair amount of time on the other side of the wall, which I describe in terms of Berlin. You know, getting there was like a Smiley movie with the, the the mirror under the car and them pulling out the back seat to make sure no one was being smuggled. Less on the way in than on the way out. Sure. my description of East Berlin was as you remember in in The Wizard of Oz when it colorizes when it goes from black and white to color. Well, this is the reverse because it is the same city. They just put a wall through the middle of it. And as you drive in in those days, it's as if all the color was drained out and everything went to black and white. Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. So so has that, you know, there's um there's a lot of people politically who, you know, believe that the left has kind of gotten a too progressive. Some would say socialist, some would say communist. These are coming from people I know who, you know, mm-hmm. are very right wing. You've actually lived and seen what communism mm-hmm. Actually, be what socialism, communism, whatever you want to call it. Yeah,
1: but I've also seen social democracies. Mm-hmm. I you know I, I spent a lot of time in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I lived in Germany, which to some extent is a social democracy. There's a huge difference. And the people who are claiming that we're somehow becoming communist or socialist or full of shit, mm-hmm. um, I am. Well, let me put my cards on the table. I, I'm a left winger i'm a huge fan of the social safety net mm-hmm. that is social democracy that is i'll give you more of my taxes if you give me something in return like making sure we don't have homeless on the streets in in, in texas like the, or san francisco um yeah. that's, that's, not now, that's i have other arguments with the left which i think has gone nuts in some respect i think the left incredibly to a great extent much of the left is now opposed to things like free speech oh yeah you as an ex-journalist free speech means the right to espouse the most abhorrent speech sure you know free speech is on or off it's not well i didn't like that and you know, someone should take the word "triggering" and, and shove it somewhere. As far as I'm concerned, as as uh, an American who believes deeply in democracy and skews to the left side of of the fence, um, you got to let people say anything uh, up until the point that the Supreme Court has defined where they're yelling "fire" in a crowded theater. Sure. And people seem to forget
0: that the ACLU got its name and got its neck recognition by defending
1: Nazis being able to hold. Oh, the it Nazis up. in Skokie is the perfect test case. Sure. You yeah. have a town, this was, I think, the 70s, you have a town filled with Holocaust survivors. A neo Nazi group wants to march there. Uh, there is an attempt to stop them, and the ACLU defends them and wins the case, and they have the right to march. But something terrible has happened to the ACLU these days. I mean, this has been written up in a number of places. They're starting to choose cases based only on whether or not they agree with the beliefs of the people they would be defending. And I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: I think that, that some people tend to forget that free speech, the idea is that you're all there. You all can have the conversation and the best speech wins.
1: And so you. To... sometimes it doesn't because life ain't fair. Sure. But the fact sure. of the matter is, I'm a free speech absolutist. You either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And I say that as, as a Jew who feels extremely um, threatened, increasingly threatened by the overt nature of the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the United States. But if you want to say anti-Semitic things, that's your right hmm
0: Where do you think
1: this political gridlock,
0: I mean, you're a journalist, so you've seen this in other places, where do you think oh, it's come from? I've never seen anything like this.
1: Um, mm. It's come from the fact that America, much of America is not exceptional. Mm. Much of America is ill-informed, undereducated, and in some respects, probably stupid. Mm. Otherwise, how could we have gotten to this point? I am deeply distressed with the state of the country. I, I am distressed for my 30-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm 68. Uh, I'll, I, <laughs> I don't have that much, you know, assuming I make it to hundred, it's still not that far. Right. Um, I, I just think, look, when I was hiring producers, I looked for only two things and, and it didn't involve television skills because you can learn those on the job. I look for intelligence and curiosity and much of America is exhibiting neither. Um, yeah. you know, we have a close family friend who says the most outrageous things. And then I say, how do, how can you, where'd you get that? And, oh, it's, it's the truth. I saw it. <laughs> no, you can't, there's nothing you can do about that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I think that, uh, a lot of the problem has been and part of the reason why i started this podcast was because i think that there are a lot of people out there who they listen to respond rather than to listen to understand and so they don't listen
1: they simply let you talk for a while until they can talk over you yeah. but that, look, That's I, I i sound relatively negative it's because i am deep i've lived in a lot of places i've been a lot of places run by autocrats I'm very scared about what's happening to our country.
0: What do you think, what is it that you're scared of? Is it is it that they might come in, into becoming a, similar to a country you've been or something different? Yeah,
1: I, I, I'm scared that the basic rights we consider, well, we consider basic, how's that for repetitive? Uh, basic rights are going to go away one by one if we're not careful. Um, there's a tremendous assault on... Um, on free speech. At the same time, this uh, there's a growing uh, group of people who think armed insurrection is okay if it's for your team. Mm. Uh, I I worry about the loss of religious liberty. You know that's become a BS talking point among the right. But if anybody's going to get religiously oppressed, it's it's not the mainstream. Um, uh, Christian denominations in the United States, uh, there's too much hate. There's, there's, and frankly, there's very little, um, belief that we should work together to make things better. I mean, Congress is going to be a deadlock for two years, um, mm-hmm. which, okay, at least they can't do damage, but, um, <laughs> No, the, the the bedrock principles that our country has been founded on, liberties, such as, and look, not to get too political. The Supreme Court at this point is is clearly a politicized body no. that is going to twist uh, its findings in virtually every case to meet its um, political interests. Uh, You know, uh, the members of the Supreme Court are originalists until they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, When they Mm -hmm. want to say no to something, they're originalists. When they want to say yes to something, even if it makes new law, then that's okay. So having lived in a number of countries, uh, having worked in a tremendously large number of countries, um, I am distressed by the degree to which much of America's population is oblivious to um reality and oblivious to the lies that they've embraced
0: Mm. now
1: comparing this to some of the
0: other places you've been i mean you like you said you were you were in berlin you've been there during the romanian revolution do you find that most people in most
1: places are very similar in that way you're asking me to go back 30 or 40 years and ask questions I didn't ask. So it's an impossible answer. I, I yeah,
0: I, I guess what I wonder is I just feel like, you know, there, there's all this stuff we hear about things like in Russia or we hear things about communism. We hear things about North Korea. We hear about these things. And I wonder just the rank and file people, you know, I bet in all of those places... Most people are very concerned about the same things that we're concerned about here.
1: Getting well, people are concerned about the same things everywhere, which is having enough to eat, a decent place to live, and health and happiness for their families. What they're willing to do to get there or what they demand of their governments to get there differs in different countries. I mean, I'm going to say something that, that is going to sound terrible. But Russians, for the most part over the past uh, let's see 45 to now 60, 70 years, kind of got the government they wanted in a strange way because I found a tremendous lack of interest in much of the Russian workforce in working and they enjoyed bitching about the government but having a guaranteed salary mm-hmm. um, that you know that that Uh, that helped allow them to be dominated because they were willing to be subservient in exchange for just enough to get by. There are different demands and needs in different countries. Mm -hmm. Um, Frankly, I think the European uh, democracy model, where um, more is provided to take care of people as a fundamental right, um, that appeals to me. Mm. So, what co- what countries
0: would you say we could implement here? Like, what what country system? And what also, countries? do you think it, it can, can scale? Them. Do you think it, it
1: can? can- for, for look, it's all about what people want, what they are. Um, Americans are not going to live in a communal apartment, mm-hmm. uh, as many upper middle class people are willing to do in Sweden. It's mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as if we could implement something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd love to see an end to conversations about doing away with things like Medicare, into mm-hmm. which people pay anyway. There's a mean streak in America, especially among the right wing, that wants to hurt people, that, that, that just thinks hey, I got it, you don't screw you. Mm. It's, um, it's not pleasant. But again, those are my politics. They're to the left of center.
0: Yeah, you know, I have friends on both sides. I tend to be moderate, though I'd say I'd probably, it's funny, I, I'm moderate, so nobody likes me, right? All my right-wing, right-wing friends think I'm a liberal, all my liberal friends think I'm too conservative. But what I've noticed about my conservative friends is it's not so much that they want to hurt people, it's that a lot of them have worked very hard to get where they're at, and they feel like, whether they're right or not, they feel like they've went through a lot to get there, and they feel if they can do it, anyone can. I do agree, though, that sometimes those people do not have a good sense of being able to place themselves into the shoes of someone less fortunate or, say, a minority or a different gender or someone issue dealing with a different issue. Um,
1: how, how many generations do they, after how many generations do they get to forget that their ancestors were immigrants and tell us how awful immigrants are?
0: Oh no, I I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you there. You know. See, that's a, that's the thing that I think is is what I'm saying is that they they know their story, and then they, what they'll do a lot of the times, and I think the the left do this too to some extent, is they look at their story and they're the hero of their own story, and so therefore they believe everyone can be the hero of their own story, and if we just stopped coddling them somehow, they would get where they're at, and they forget that. They do have some things like i do believe that yeah there is a there is a privilege to being a white male mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that if you're a white male like i've had a, a colored colorful life i didn't grow up in the in like a upper middle class you know pay for college do all those things in life but but i do recognize that being six foot seven white guy has definitely helped me a lot more than if i were somebody else
1: right mm-hmm. you six seven
0: uh, I am, I'm six seven,
1: played Genius. basketball. Can you help me get that pan off the top shelf? <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: right. Yeah.
0: And so so all of those things I understand. And I think that sometimes people don't understand that someone like I my experience, let's put it this way, my experience, I've been pulled over with a group of white guys and a group of black guys. And the experience is much different. Of course. And, and uh and I don't think enough people have been in that situation to understand that the experience is quite different. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. Now, now you got to cover a lot of stuff. I mean, like I said, I mean, one of the things I noticed that I really wanted to ask you about it was you had an opportunity to interview. Um, um, uh, Gaddafi. Qaddafi in his, in his, yeah. in his Tripoli house after it was bombed. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. And w- tell me what that was like for you. I mean, this guy's a
1: dictator or at least that's what well, he's he's a, a murderer too. Um, having dealt with him previously, Mm. it was no surprise to me (coughs) one-on-one, pardon me, that he was ungodly charismatic, Mm. all leaders, including evil. I mean, I guess Hitler was charismatic. He, he attracted a crowd. Gaddafi was charismatic. Um, he was well prepared in dealing with the foreign press he'd been doing it for years Mm -hmm. um you know they had their point they wanted to make they wanted to show me the the damage to the house so i got a little tour uh which included the round um the round bed that looked like you hefner owned it that had like blue velveteen um arms coming out of it with buttons that i assume were for the lights or the stereo um Mm. you know you you don't the problem is you don't get an interview like that doesn't get you much yes Mm. you talk to him and the bosses in new york can say it's exclusive but these guys don't tell you much um i mean at the end of the he's he spoke perfect english Mm. um he certainly understood perfect english but from time to time for political reasons when being interviewed he would insist on arabic and use a translator and at the end of the the substantive questions i threw in one more the uh, not to disparage anyone in today's aware conversation about non-binary but the new york post had put on its cover a mocked up picture of Gaddafi wearing a dress and heels because the CIA had leaked him a story, who knows if it was true, that he liked to cross-dress. Is that term still usable? He liked to dress up in women's clothing Mm -hmm. and that he was taking a lot of psychotropic drugs. Mm -hmm. So as my last question, I I said, um, the New York Post says that you like to wear women's clothing and that you're taking a lot of drugs. Would you like to comment on that? And I looked over at the translator who was not going to translate the question. (laughs) But Gaddafi did speak English and he burst out laughing. And then he blamed it all on uh, the Zionists. But uh, he did crack up over the question.
0: (laughs) That's that's interesting. How did you feel when there was a pretty graphic YouTube video of his death? Uh, I don't know if you ever saw it or read about it.
1: Yeah, I saw it. Um, he, wow. I'm about to say something that if it were put on my tombstone for my epitaph, uh, probably wouldn't thrill me. He deserved to die. He was an evil monster who had done horrible things. Mm-hmm. And I was not negatively impacted by his own citizens ripping him to death. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make me cold? I'm sorry. Um I maintain, maintained, uh, and whenever I do something journalistic today, I maintain um, an absolute neutrality. But as a human being, I'm Jewish. He was involved in some awful things against Israel and Jews, so screw him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. my personal opinion. That, that's, you know.
0: Yeah. You also had an opportunity to uh, have uh, breakfast in the morning with Yasser Arafat.
1: Yeah, I met Arafat a bunch of times. Um, I mean, again, that's I met. Talk about neutrality as a journalist and its importance. I met both Arafat and I interviewed George Habash, who is about as cold blooded uh, an Arab terrorist has ever walked the face of the earth and whose eyes were the deadest eyes I've ever seen in my life. But wow. that's what you, that's what you do when you do it impartially mm-hmm. and you leave behind any personal feelings you have. Yeah. We had breakfast with Arafat on three in the morning. Cause that's, uh, I mean, I, it wasn't me and him right here. It's a long table with a lot of people. Sure. But, um, You do that in the middle of the night before you get the middle of the night interview. Um, And, you know, back this was before the State Department had accepted the PLO as a government. And while it was still classified as a terrorist organization, and um, they refused to acknowledge the existence of Israel. You couldn't say the word in front of them. And those of us who traveled the Middle East all had a second passport to use only for Israel. So, Mm. and you'd ask them not to stamp it, but just in case, because if you had an Israeli stamp in your passport, you weren't getting into an Arab country. Anyway, um, we're having breakfast and in the middle of the meal, the sound man, and it's always the sound man, perks (laughs) up and goes, blood oranges. I haven't had one of those since I was in Israel. Oh. Remember remember the brokerage firm commercials where the whole room goes dead silent? Yeah. Somebody yeah. talks, they like anyway. The room went completely dead silent instantly for what felt like 12 to 15 days. I suspect it was like three seconds. And then conversation resumed as if he had never said that. And it was not wow. common Yeah, you know, I had a, an interesting situation with Arafat as well um, probably before this, I'm not sure. Um, he was in, where the hell were we? Where does the Blue and White Nile come together? Is that cartoon? Anyway, uh, I'm, gonna, just, I'm, just, I'm just gonna about. say yes. I don't know. No, I <laughs> hadn't, been, hadn't been to this country before. I'd been out jogging in the morning by the, it was, you know, one of those things you take note of. Anyway, there was a big anti-American demonstration that afternoon in the main square and Arafat was speaking and it was getting a little rough. And mm. he noted me, I guess this must have been after breakfast because he saw me in the crowd and he gave me a wink, like to say, it's all for show, relax, which mm. I thought was
0: Hmm. Interesting, man. He was a, politician.
1: He was a murdering Who? politician, but he was a politician.
0: Who do you, who is your favorite? Uh, who would you say would have been your favorite interview in your time in network news?
1: Well, I didn't get him. Uh, two different answers here. Mm-hmm. The most important, most remarkable person on the world stage at the time I was covering, sorry, more coffee at the time I was covering stuff like this was Mikhail Gorbachev. Oh, wow. Who absolutely changed the world, was internally disgraced as a result um what he ended communism ronald reagan did not um i thought he was uh, of all the people i've seen journalistically he, he was the one now the most impressive individual interview was a guy named yuri hayek who had been the foreign minister of czechoslovakia during the 1968 Russian invasion of the country. He was in New York at the UN at the time and could have stayed, but he flew back to his country because it was his country and he was going to fight for it. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time I got to know Yuri Hayek in the 80s, he was a dissident and had been for many, many years. He was a member of charter 77 which was um, the dissidents group and every year they picked someone else to be their spokesman to be surreptitiously interviewed by visiting western journalists and then he would be put in prison or something bad would happen to him or his family and yuri hayek this little man with coke bottle glasses sitting in his old might have been a house i'm not sure or apartment, I remember interviewing him and thinking to myself, I don't have balls like that. Here's a guy who knows that this, this goal of his, that this one interview will not achieve, that what he's doing to get there will cause him personal pain. And he still had the guts to do it. Um, That's pretty damn impressive. That is
0: man. Who is the guy that uh, if you could or or gal if you could uh, get anybody to interview, who would you want?
1: Yeah. Uh. There's I there's there's no one I'm sitting here thinking. I mean, there's a lot of people who died. I would have liked to have interviewed. Oh,
0: I'd liked
1: to have had a one-on-one with Gorbachev i would have liked to have had a one-on-one with einstein mm. um i i would like to have had a one-on-one with gold Meir. my mm. um you know i've done a lot of reporting on israel uh that, that at one time got me on their list of assholes mm. um because I deeply believe the state of Israel is important and needs to exist. Doesn't mean I have to agree with its government and doesn't mean that my journalistic pursuits won't expose some, some things I don't like about what they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, we did a documentary of which I was not in charge, but I was one of the the producers of a segment in 1987 called Israel, the six day war plus 20 years A dream is dying. And we we dealt pretty heavily with the fact that being forced into an occupation was, was ripping at the souls of Israelis. Mm. And and so what uh,
0: when you say it was ripping at the soul of, of Israelis, what do you what do you mean by that?
1: Being an occupying force requires doing things that seem icky. Mm. Um ties up a tremendous amount of vitality and energy on the part of the populace fighting about it. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, uh, look, my my view on this is that Arafat had a chance to make peace and blew it. Um, You now have a situation that has led to this ultra-right-wing Israeli government led by a prime minister who's under indictment uh, this is not going to be a good thing. <clears throat> On the other hand, reading one more story about um, supposed left-wing students at a university getting all hot and bothered about Israel and its territory, I thought to myself, why don't they get hot and bothered about the half of Mexico we took away from them in 1840-something? And... Mm-hmm. Um, or, or the entire continent that we stole from Native Americans, whom upon whom we then uh, foistered a genocide, or uh, or Strasbourg, France, which was once Germany, should they give that back? I mean, there, there's a point in history where things that were decided by conflict were fait accompli, unless you're Israel and then the world beats you up because it's fun. <laughs> right well um
0: where's a what where do you think is your favorite place that you uh, that you were able to you know i guess perform the news
1: uh anywhere along the coast of uh, of spain oh, Spain's really? my favorite european country my wife and i just visited a couple of years ago um it's an extraordinary country it's an extraordinary cuisine it's amazing weather. Most Americans don't know it exists. So, yeah, you, you put me down. Not, not Marbella, which is a, uh, a tourist trap, but any place else, Valencia, just someplace on the water in Spain. I'm a happy guy.
0: One, uh, real quick, we're going to go into food and talk about uh, some of the things you've done since leaving Network News. But I, re- I read somewhere that you said that you left Network News with your wife, who I know also worked for NBC. And you said that uh, network news was no longer what you viewed it as. Uh, What did you mean by that?
1: Well, the network news that I fell in love with was, among other things, not beholden to make a profit. Mm. At the time I entered the network news business, the news divisions were loss leaders. Um, Nobody gave a damn about what they made. When all three networks were bought up by conglomerates, that changed. And the way in which we covered the news changed. And grabbing viewers became far more important. And uh, the amount of time available to spend... I mean, I once went to Ethiopia for, I don't know, a week, 10 days, traveling all over the country with a crew and correspondent, just trying to figure out what story was there one year after the famine. So we spent anywhere between sixty dollars and $100,000 on that story and then turned out a pretty damn good four-minute story for Nightly News. No one is spending money like that today. Uh, secondarily, um, I was line producer with Morning America. That means subject of the EP, one week out of three, it was my show. Um, and E. B. came to me and said, they're going to have a million-dollar winner on The Millionaire tonight. That was when it was still hot. Uh, you need to put him in the first half hour tomorrow. Now, the first half hour is news. The Millionaire is not news. At mm-hmm. that point, I realized that definitions had changed. Let me make one thing perfectly clear, however, he said, doing his best, Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that major network news is um skewed on purpose Mm. it does bad things on purpose i still think all three networks well four include cnn i won't include fox um that the intent is to tell the truth as best they can um, partially because of financial reasons, partially because they're more interested in attracting viewers than before, there's a much higher level of ineptitude now, and a lot of stupid stuff gets on the air. I throw shoes at the screen every night just for grammatical reasons. Um, so no, it's not it's it's not the network news that that I enjoyed being part of. But it's not they're not the monsters. They're not evil. They're not trying to skew an agenda. But do you think that it ultimately is? That what ultimately is?
0: That it ultimately yeah. is skewing an agenda, even if it's not on purpose?
1: No, I, I Well, MS skews an agenda because they're pretty clear that that's what they want. Fox mm-hmm. skews an agenda because it's pretty clear that's what they want. I think the main, the three, uh, CNN's a funny one because... Under Zucker, I do think they had moved to a pretty partisan left-wing position. I think Chris Licht, who was once my intern, uh, is trying to bring them back to the center. But I think the three main uh, news operations, CBS, NBC, and ABC, are trying hard not to present an agenda. I mean, look, one of the problems with journalism is that if you're a journalist— You are interested in rooting out, presumably, well, there's a whole new generation that's just interested in being on television, but um, (laughs) if your interest is is journalistic, you're looking to root out problems, which means by definition, um, you're going to be somewhat antagonistic with any power center, Mm -hmm. and that can get presented as left-wing. I don't think it is.
0: Well, you know, I this is my view on it, and I could be wrong. I, I'm not a journalist. It's just my observation. I, I do have a degree in government, which is political science, technically. Um, you know, I, what I think, I, I think what's happened here, I agree with you a little bit, and I don't Well, I don't know if I would say that they're not skewing it on purpose. I don't think they're skewing it strictly because of political reasons. Like, I don't think that there's someone there who's just part of the left wing agenda at MSNBC going, we're going to make sure that we just propagandize everybody to the left. And I don't think there's somebody on, well, maybe there, I don't know, maybe there is somebody at Fox news going, we're going to skew all this to the right. I think what happened was Fox news figured out that if they do that, they're going to get a lot of viewers. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, MSNBC and CNN said, well, we they've cornered the market right, on that. Right,
1: you're talking about cable, which is not the big three news operations. that I've Ah, been.
0: okay. So you're talking about the network. I'm talking news. about
1: broadcast, ABC, broadcast. CBS, NBC. Yeah. Cable's a different world, and it's the Wild West. And I hope CNN comes back to its objectivity. But no, I'm not going to argue with you that MSNBC isn't a left wing. Yeah, uh, Fox is certainly right wing.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I agree. And and people who sit there and say that that, that it's not, I, I think that they're just they're just being disingenuous. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean it really is. As far as the networks ABC, NBC, C B S, uh, yeah, you know, I think that I think you're probably right in that way that they're they're legitimate. Which
1: doesn't mean that they don't accidentally do a lot of stupid shit. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. So Oh um, and the one the one place that I do think um, bias crept through recently um, was in the failure of any network to do after the Supreme Court um, killed Roe versus Wade nobody gave um, anti-abortion activists a, a reasonable piece of time to revel in their success. I think this was such an emotional item for so many people, myself included, that I think the network newscasts probably unintentionally um, went with the, isn't this a shame, and the folks who got rid of it are evil, whereas there was a very, look, I'm I'm so pro-abortion rights, uh, I can't quantify it. But I do think that somebody should have done a piece giving the activists who had worked for 50 years to, to get this change, to give them their due and let them say, we did this. We work hard for it. We're going to revel in it. We think it's a good thing. You know, I
0: think this is my personal opinion on this. I think that when, when this uh, case came through, um, I think that everybody focused on the wrong thing. And and Which what word? I mean by that, I think uh, what I mean by that is you mentioned how politicized the judiciary has come has become, mm-hmm. and how activist the jury the uh, judiciary has become. And I do believe that as well. Whether the whether it skews left, whether it skews right, whether it's in the middle, it is. I mean, in fact, uh, I can't remember his name. I think it was uh, Ben Sass when Justice Kavanaugh was being uh, before all of the stuff with the sexual mm-hmm. assault. He said, he goes, you know, I have to apologize to you, Justice Kavanaugh. This should not be that big of a deal. And he's like, but the reason it's such a big deal is because the, the, the Congress does not pass specific laws. They, put, they do things that are vague. Then policymakers come in and do the interpretation. And then we leave you the job of interpreting this in a way. You know, so that what, the-
1: what, what the court has clearly said to the congressional branch is, if you want something to happen, pass the damn law. And part of me says that's great. Yeah. Part of me says three members of that court took an oath to tell the truth and then lied about their position on Roe versus Wade.
0: Did they? Say, well, that's they it lied.
1: They said it's uh, the 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 phrase was it's decided law. Mm. Now.
0: Uh,
1: you want to talk about nuance and implication? Fine, yeah. You're talking, they you're talking made you're it very, very like clear that. that they weren't <laughs> gonna screw with Roe versus Wade, and then they did. Now, by the way, you know, Roe versus Wade has had problems from the beginning, yeah. Um, uh, Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, said she was not thrilled with the basis on which it was initially decided, sure. Uh, I mean, that court kind of created a right of privacy. On the right. other hand after 50 years as the law of the land you don't go in and just throw it out. Well, you know it's interesting like
0: I said as a as an attorney this is something that for me has been uh I've had a lot of discussions about this because you're right Roe v Wade it was very loose the 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 judicial reasoning the logical reasoning based on the law was pretty loose like coming up with a Due process argument that was probably almost certainly not intended by the Fourteenth Amendment when it was created was was quite a it was a novel approach that I don't think had a strong basis in law. That doesn't mean that I don't agree that there should be some sort of right to an abortion. I'm just saying that you know legally it was pretty loose. Well, there, so, there
1: was another element of Roe v. Wade that nobody has talked about. I, I addressed it in a documentary I did with Maria Shriver uh, many mm. years ago. Viability, you know, Ro, Roe v. Wade uses the viability standard as the cutoff. Right. Well, uh, the advances in medical technology are moving viability earlier and earlier. Yeah, And that true. was going to be an issue at some point in the future anyway oh sure yeah, that is
0: sure but but the thing that is is that my my whole issue is, is i go okay so when you give the judiciary a right to create a law mm-hmm. not necessarily out of thin air but pretty close right mm-hmm. then you also have the right that then someone can take it away and that's mm-hmm. why you know the, i i tell people when they get upset about that i say you know the best way to do that is to get your base out, get the people into Congress and pass a constitutional amendment that grants a right to, to an abortion? You don't, well, need, that that. Happen. You don't
1: need a Probably. constitutional amendment. You just
0: need a law. Well, right, but I'm just saying the best way you to know, make look,
1: sure... you can't pass constitutional amendments in modern America. You're just not going to get the support in legislatures.
0: Um, yeah, it's the tough. the, it's the tough. only
1: way to do this is to pass a law that says it's legal. And, and which... From what i've read and i'm not a lawyer but i married one um (laughs) from what i've read that that's enough um yeah it could be but also that's where the court has been telling congress to go about everything
0: um well you know what's interesting about that though is that i don't know with the way that this this because this essentially you know a lot of people don't understand that this did not say Abortion is illegal. Just let, let the states decide. Let the states, right. So now I wonder, if you passed a federal law, that would almost mm-hmm. certainly end up back in the Supreme Court. Because then the federal law would say, well, this is a state's right issue, so that would be the argument. The other thing that I think people don't think about, some do, but I don't think people think about is, I've heard some people say, well, now I'm worried about Oberfeld, which is the one that allowed, which is the one that came out of California that legalized gay marriage throughout the country. And I said... You should be. You should yeah, be. You, well, you should, should worry about
1: loving as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you you should be a, a, afraid because there is even less precedent and less legal binding for Kennedy's decision there than there was for Roe v. Wade. Not to say that it shouldn't be legal. It certainly should be Except legalized. you
1: know what? It all makes sense. Those are things in a modern society that should be accepted, which gets to a much broader question about conservatives in the court Mm. the you know they want to be originalists okay Mm. under the original uh what the founders decreed was that black people would be counted as three-fifths of white people oh yeah Mm. women could not vote only Mm. landowners could vote so this is horseshit Uh, the concept uh this was always intended if you look at intent I believe the Constitution was intended to be a living document. Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: I believe that the founders, who were revolutionaries, um, did not want to handcuff us into the beliefs of their day. And I believe that the right wing on this court uses that specious argument to, to pursue its own agenda. I mean, this is not... The founders didn't really consider whether or not it was legal to impose speed limits on cars that went 65 miles an hour Mm
0: -hmm. they have
1: no they had no concept of internet privacy frankly they had no concept of hipaa Mm -hmm. um and and any other medical issue so i think it's a red herring to to try to declare that um the constitution as it would have been interpreted by a bunch of dead guys is how we should be living our lives in the 21st century. Just well, if, if, you read, more, if you
0: read some of Thomas Jefferson's writings, you see there were there were times where he espoused an idea that every generation should create its own constitution. So, you know, that that does certainly lead to the idea that he did expect that the constitution would change over time. I think. Yeah, I think some of the framers would be, if they were here today, would be surprised that we haven't created anything different. And and mm-hmm. and have said, and I think they would look at our system and go, "This is not what we were intending."
1: You know, yeah, I mean, um, look, who was it? Was it Franklin asked, "What have you given us?" Was it Franklin or Jefferson who said, um, "A republic, if you can keep it." Yeah right um or did he say democracy we're not a democracy we're a republic but anyway um wow well i have no strong feelings on any of this yeah i can tell well and it's good to hear
0: from somebody who's who's been a journalist who's been around who's actually seen these things you know a lot of people have opinions who've never been there you have now now transferring this back so you get out of network news you start your own production company Mm-hmm. You're, you're kind of hooked in and I understand that Al Roker is the one who kind of helped you.
1: Yeah, uh, Al, When I, I was the co-founder co-producer of the Weekend Today show hmm. and Al was on that show before he transitioned over to the main show to replace Willard Scott and when I opened a production company uh, I basically uh, couldn't get any work <laughs> so <laughs> I called Al who has a production company and I said, you got anything you, you could throw my way? And he said, sure, I'm doing a lot of stuff for the Food Network. Why don't I subcontract some of it to you? So he did that. And that's how I became familiar with the Food Network and vice versa. And at, at some point, he and I both agreed I wasn't going to make any real money as a, a subcontracted employee. So I started pitching the network uh, myself. Mm. And, of course,
0: uh, you pitched uh... – the idea for diners, drive-ins, and dives. Tell us how that came about.
1: Well, I, was, uh, I had made a number of phone calls, pitching stuff to a particular network executive. And she was kind enough to take my calls, but n- nothing was going anywhere. I mean, she just kept turning stuff down. Finally, on the latest of those calls, which I think was on a late Thursday or late Friday afternoon, I was in my office, in my house, And uh, I had done a documentary for them through uh, Al Roker's company about diners. And finally, in frustration, as she turned down yet another of my pitches, she said, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm developing this show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And I told her all about it. And finally, she said, you know, that sounds good. Um, Give me a write-up on Monday. We have a development meeting on Tuesday. And I hung up the phone, kind of conflicted. On the one hand, this was good news. On the other hand, I had just made up the name out of thin air on the phone when she asked and the detailed description of the show that I gave her. So now I had you know, a weekend to call around the country and try to come up with enough uh, bookings and such to, to fill a proposal. Uh, so I wrote a proposal for a one-hour special. That's what she asked for. Uh, sent it in she got it Monday shortly thereafter they commissioned um, a special which uh, did far better than they expected which which resulted in something unusual they, they had not to the best of my knowledge considered this as a series they Al uh, uh, I'm sorry Guy had won the uh, Food Network Star Contest the second one And back then, they actually thought this contest was going to develop their future stars. It turned out he's the only one who ever made it. But um, they wanted to keep him visible to the public while they developed a primetime show for him. And they had asked a couple of big boy production companies to to come up with proposals. But um, after our special did well, uh, they looked at those big boy proposals and didn't like them. So mm-hmm. they kind of took a risk on this little guy who was at that time out in Minneapolis and said, why don't you do a short season of diners for us? Mm-hmm. And, uh, we did. And, and within a few episodes, it was clear. This was a hit, but they warned me. They said, look, uh, this may have a year or two in it, but it's not going to have legs because there just aren't enough restaurants. Oh. And, uh,
0: there are plenty of I, restaurants.
1: I I left after season eleven. They're now in season forty, something. so there might have been enough restaurants.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is America. There's a restaurant everywhere. when I was in I was in Italy one time, and uh, i I sat down next to this German couple and it was the it was really funny. i I was actually really surprised talking about food, how different Europeans look at it, particularly Italians, because we I sat down there and in sitting down, I spent about 3 hours talking to this German couple. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just sat there all day drinking <laughs> wine, eating eating great food mm-hmm. and talking. And I remember him saying to me, he goes, "You're from America." And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "I would love to go to America." And I said, "What do you think you would do if you came to America?" And he goes, "I would eat whoppers for every meal." And I said, "Are you serious?" And he goes, <laughs> "Yeah." And I go, "Is that what you think of our country?" He goes, was not that true? Don't you have a a fast food restaurant on every corner. And I said, no. Right. I mean, I was like 23, 24 at the time.
1: That is the impression.
0: Yeah. And so then, but then I fly in, I fly back, my dad picks us up. We drive back and I look at it and I was like, you know what? He's not far off. There no, really is. Yeah. There's a restaurant not on it. every corner. So doesn't surprise me. They've gotten to, to 40. So now, no, now no. Uh, tell me, what is your, so so? Guy is a relatively unknown when you bring him in. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it, did you know pretty quickly that you really had a, a pretty good host here?
1: Well, when they first told me he was going to be the host, I didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. So I Googled him and I saw this cartoon. I mean, it was really him, but it looked like a cartoon to me. And I thought I'm screwed. <laughs> so then we went out to shoot the pilot. And it was obvious very quickly that, that he was lightning in a bottle. He mm-hmm. didn't know anything about television. He frankly didn't know all that much about diners. He's a California guy. And to him, a diner was just a greasy spoon serving hamburgers. Mm-hmm. But A, he had more natural talent natural talent for television than anyone else I've met.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And B, he picked this stuff up very quickly. And C, at the time, he was coachable. I could mm. teach him, and this this sounds arrogant, I don't mean it to, but I could teach him how to do TV the right way. Mm. And um, very quickly it was clear that, that he, he was gonna work.
0: Yeah, he seems every time he goes in. I've watched I have watched a ton of Diners Drivers and Dives. It is not great for my diet, but when I um whenever he goes in there, it seems like he becomes buddies with people just right off the gate.
1: Um yeah. No, he's, he's a very forceful, dynamic, um, friendly personality. And and look, TV, TV is all about one thing, spending time with people you want to spend time with. That's why, um, Tom Selleck's a big star. That, that's why, um, oh, what's her name? She's great. Now I'll forget her name. The, the woman who was in Cagney and Lacey, uh, She's been in a million uh, TV shows because you want to hang out with her. It's mm-hmm. only about feeling comfortable with the person you're with. If, if you have that, I can make it great. If you mm-hmm. don't, I can't make it good. You, mm-hmm. have to, you have to come through the lens. And, uh, you know, guys far from the, the only on-air talent I've um, coached up, and it's all the same either you have it or you don't if you have it as as green or as rudimentary as you may be i can go from there but Mm -hmm. you gotta have it Mm -hmm.
0: so what were some of the things that you recall having to kind of teach him
1: oh i first of all um let's not place this i mean i don't want to sound like i'm saying i made guy fieri Okay. Oh sure sure. You guys are a tremendously talented individuals. But some of it I mean it's everything from the technical of of how to eat something on camera without looking disgusting mm-hmm. to how to interact with someone in a way that is natural but still encompasses the the shot that you need. To how to read a script, that's mm-hmm. in some respects the most important because narrating for television is like music. It's all about using the 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 melody of your words to convey your story correctly. But let me be clear. Um, I didn't make Guy. I helped Guy maximize his potential.
0: Yeah. Wow. Is there... Um, uh... Tell us a little bit about the process of of um, picking the, the restaurants for diners, drive-ins, and dives.
1: But again, I don't know what they do today. Uh-huh. Um, when I was running things, uh, we had researchers. Uh, we would tell them what area we want to go to. Because again, so much of television is budget. I would choose geographical areas such as the four corners of Colorado, Arizona, et cetera, et cetera, mm. that would allow us in the course of five shooting days to stockpile locations from various states or regions so that when we put these segments together into full shows, we had variety. Um, mm. We would begin, um, the internet was not as significant then as it is now, though it was significant. you do... The researchers would do a a complete search of all food related publications or stories in a particular area try to figure out who those knowledgeable about food in the area were who's running a who's writing a column who's a food critic who knows somebody call them and talk and ask for suggestions and then we would narrow those down by doing extensive interviews with the owners or chefs at any of those places um, in an attempt to figure out if they were really doing homemade food the way we thought it ought to be done. Um, we were very good at picking only 5% of the time that we showed up at a place to shoot did I get a call from guy saying, uh-uh. And at that point, I would say, well, uh, thank them politely and walk out. Mm. Um, and the network thought I was crazy because I didn't tell them about this. I ate this cash, mm. but I just wasn't going to put something on the air that shouldn't be on the air. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And so what were some of your favorite cities to go to for? Well, I didn't after the first season. Well, maybe part of the second season, because we did a diner tour, but I mostly was controlling the operation from back in the office mm. uh, at that point, And I had crews and producers going out with Guy but um, I enjoyed going to the uh, Squeeze Inn. Mm. I enjoyed our New Jersey diner tour. I loved the uh, um, uh, barbecue joint that we a mutton barbecue joint we did in Lexington, Kentucky, which I didn't mm. shoot at originally. But my my daughter's an equestrian, and we often competed when she was in high school in Lexington, so I, I got to spend a fair amount of time eating mutton barbecue at that place. Um, it got to the point where uh, I couldn't go in that often because they would fill our table with food and they wouldn't take any money. And it turned out they, like many other places, being on diners had actually saved them from bankruptcy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've, I've actually heard of that a couple of times. I know that with the squeeze in after your uh, after it aired, that was a big deal. You know, Yeah, it gets,
1: it was- it gets a little busy.
0: Yeah, it does. Um, what is your favorite kind of food?
1: Overall, I'd probably say Spanish. Although hmm. my my favorite, my two favorite dishes, uh, my my death row dishes, uh, depending upon how I feel on a given day, would either be bagels, lox, and cream cheese, hmm. or Central Texas brisket from uh, Louis Miller's oh big brisket fan huh uh central texas barbecue fan yes
0: oh yeah you're okay all right so um uh now you you did 11 seasons with Mm -hmm. diners dives uh -hmm. something did something change what why did you uh why did you eventually leave it's
1: television um things happen
0: Mm, okay Okay. So we'll keep it tight-lipped as the as to the reason there why you why Wait you Yeah, sure. So since uh since Triple D, well, do you still keep in contact with anybody guy or anybody else uh, that was involved? No,
1: television unfortunately is a very tight-knit business while you're doing it mm-hmm. and then everyone moves on to something else. Mm-hmm. Um okay. I moved on to um, a series about craft beer called Beer Geeks with a terrific talent named Michael Ferguson, who's a well-known member of the brewing community. Then I moved on to my book, and now I'm pretty much full-time focused on a radio show I'm syndicating called Martini Music, which is uh, all about the music of the 30s and 40s. Oh, nice.
0: Wow. So on your radio show, do you just play the music or do you give a little history of the music first?
1: Oh, I tell you, each episode features either a performer or a genre, or a composer. And the whole idea is that by the time the hour is done, you know a whole lot more than you ever knew before about the individual songs or the individuals I'm featuring.
0: Now is that, are you into that music specifically or why? Yeah,
1: I I happen to love that music, but I also happen to love the rock and roll of the uh, uh, late 60s, Um, Hmm. either of which, <clears throat> would have made a syndicated show, but the syndicators suggested that it was probably better to go with the old stuff. So interesting. Okay. So, what, when you say the late sixties rock, what is your, what are the bands you're talking about? Chicago, hmm. Carly Simon, James Taylor, blood, sweat and tears, the Beatles, the stones, um, bread that, that genre. Oh. I was, a, I was a teenage DJ.
0: <laughs> I, I remember
1: chi- when the album American Pie showed up. I saw Chicago with Crosby uh, Elton John. Dallin. Dallin. Yes, you saw Chicago where I
0: did uh, here in Sacramento at the Cal Expo. They don't, they don't yeah, do hot is, is Peter Cetera still with it? He was then. This is back probably in 1998, so it's been a while. Um, first of all, I was surprised because everybody was there, Chicago was the headliner, mm-hmm. but. Crosby, Stills, and Nash came out. And I was expecting, I I watched Woodstock, the documentary. Mm-hmm. So I, that's where I learned of Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Well,
1: they're among that. my
0: favorites from that era. Oh, okay, great. And so yeah. I was expecting to be quite folky. No, mm-hmm. no, oh. they came out and they clearly wanted to rock and they and they did, it blew me away. Um, I became bigger fans. They're, they were a band, there's, I love it when you go to a band live and it makes you a bigger fan. Or turns you in, into- yeah,
1: and that's look, that's hard to find because so much of what goes on goes on, uh, at the hands of the producer and engineer, yeah, in the recording studio. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me, but no, they look Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Billy, Joel, Elton, John, um, Carol King. It's uh, mm-hmm. you know, I went I, it, much to my disappointment, we went to see Dylan recently. Oh, and- really he's arguably still alive. He doesn't say a word to the crowd. He doesn't get out from behind his piano. He doesn't play his guitar and he mostly talks the songs. So, okay.
0: Yeah. It was, it's actually interesting. I, um, so I took my dad, his favorite band is the who, and uh, I fell in love with them. Young. My dad actually got a paper, the pay-per-view it was 1989. And the who did the rock opera, Tommy better on mm-hmm. pay-per-view it was the last time they were going to do it. They did it in L.A. And we had a recording of that. And I watched that all through my high school. And so I took him to see uh, The Who, which now is just Roger Daltrey and, and Pete Townsend. And this had to have been 2000 and probably like six, two mm-hmm. yeah, 2006. And man, like we went and saw them and they had just at that point, they seemed a little too old. To hit, you know, Roger Daltrey couldn't hit those loud, loud screens anymore, screens anymore. I don't see
1: I don't want to see that. I want to see who was it? I guess it was James Taylor and Carol King did a back-to-back where they each did a mm-hmm. set and then they came together. We saw that recently. It was phenomenal. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, oh. When I was line producing GMA, we were doing concerts in the park. Mm-hmm. And we did one with Carly Simon, who is notorious for stage fright. And mm-hmm. um we recorded it to play it back the next day. Her people insisted they wanted to auto tune it if she was off key. Anyway, she's walking back from the stage and I'm coming out of the control room trailer. And I say to her, um, Ms. Simon, that was absolutely fantastic. And she looks at me, she goes, well, I'm glad someone thinks so. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I love, I love those, that old music. I mean, the older music, uh, you know, I was <laughs> watching these, but man, you know, something
1: about the 60s that's just magical,
0: you know, for, for music. Yeah,
1: well, look, the 60s basically at this point are great music and a bucket full of dashed hopes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, it, it's funny. I I wonder if my so my son is a, he plays guitar. He's a mm-hmm. he he uh, sings. He wants to be a rock star. He's in a mm-hmm. choir. I mean, he's very talented. And so I make a point, for all my kids, I got four, and all of my kids and I, um, uh, I make them listen to 80s music, and some 90s, but 80s, and mm-hmm. I took him, um, you know, I, I've taken him to uh, some of those old old bands, um, and then some of the 90s ones too. We just recently saw Green Day, and Weezer, and, um, and uh, Fall Out Boy, and it's just it's cool to watch your kids fall in love with the music that you fell in love with. Yeah, you know?
1: but you know what? If he's a guitar player, play him some Django Reinhardt. Oh yeah, yeah, he's getting into all of that stuff. I yeah, mean, play he's, him some Django Reinhardt. Play yeah. him some of the old stuff. Come on, get in yeah, there.
0: I will. I will definitely. Well, um, so you have a book, Food Americana.
1: I picked yeah, up. Yeah, buy concert. it. I had to put my daughter through grad school for God's sake. <laughs> what is she trying to get a gra- uh, graduate degree in? My daughter went straight through at Columbia, got Mm -hmm. her MFA in poetry. Um, We can't figure out how to open a poetry store. So (laughs) she is vice president for for online marketing at a company that sells crystals and uh, precious gems while she writes poetry at home. Nice. Some of which will soon be published, I suspect, because she's really good. Oh,
0: that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, your book, Food Americana. So I yeah. picked it up, started reading it. I've only gotten through a couple of chapters, read your 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 chapter on pizza, made me hungry
1: immediately. Tell us uh, about your book. Well, when I was uh, first sent to Europe, I, I had never contemplated leaving the country. They called me up one day and said, you want to move to England? Uh, so I found myself woefully unprepared uh, when I started traveling Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. I was going to country after country that I basically knew nothing about. And as I tried to catch up, I, I pretty quickly came to realize that uh, food is a gateway to understanding a culture. Um, that uh, chacrute is the native dish of Strasbourg, France, because they fought over that plot of land for years and it used to be Germany. Or um, Ormeza reflects the mindset of the greek culture that that uh wants conviviality as epicurus and yes there was an epicurus uh, wrote uh that you should determine who you're going to eat with before you determine what you're going to eat because eating by yourself is like being a wolf Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um you know in tuscany for example they, they they eat a tremendous amount of wild boar well, the reason they do that is it's historically been a tremendously poor region. And if you couldn't shoot it, you weren't going to eat. Um, I, I brought those feelings back to the States with me when I moved back. And uh, they underpinned some of what I was um, looking for in diners. And then after, after diners, after beer geeks, I was looking for a new project. And I said to myself, what is American cuisine? Much as that encounter you had in Italy with people mm-hmm. who thought American cuisine was nothing but, but burgers. Um, other countries have cuisines, although to be fair, other regions have cuisines. There, there's, mm-hmm. you know, most, most other countries, um, they don't have a national cuisine, they have a series of regional cuisines. The, the food in, in Venice and the, the food in, uh, in Naples are very different. Having Mm -hmm. said that, I I decided to determine what is American cuisine, he said grammatically and correctly. Um, and after a couple of years, I I came to the conclusion that to use the old melting pot trope, which is to a great extent true, America built a cuisine out of the foods of a variety of other cuisines, um who's uh, from, uh, that came with people as they emigrated to this country. When they came here, be it from Italy or, or Romania or wherever, uh, or Mexico, they, uh, they then uh, created an Americanized version of that cuisine down through the years. Mm. And no Mexican food, Mexican American food is not Mexican food. It doesn't yeah. make it any less valuable or any less worthwhile. It's just an evolved cuisine of its own based on uh, what Americans would eat of what was initially a Mexican menu, uh, of available ingredients to to make a Mexican menu out of. Um, when uh, When the poorest of the poor came here from Southern Italy, they were stunned at the abundance of food available, even to those who were poor, which Mm -hmm. is why pizza that had at one point been nothing more than dough and tomato uh, suddenly became this, this thing with so much stuff on it, which is why uh, meat sauce came to be. There was no meat sauce in Southern Mm -hmm. Italy. Good luck getting meat here. Even if you were poor, you could afford some meat. And that, that's why, Americanized Italian food, to a great extent, involves a sense of abundance, of, of abundance. Um, and I chose the cuisines that had been Americanized enough to form part of our national cuisine based on, could you regularly look up at lunchtime and say, let's go get that anywhere in the country? which is why Chinese is in, sushi is in, Thai is not, Vietnamese is not. Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the the items that are now everyday American eating. and that includes sushi, by the way. Yeah. No, I, I love sushi. It's great. Um, so
0: uh, so your book is Food Americana. You can get it virtually anywhere, including
1: Amazon, which is where I got yes. it. Good. Uh, go to Amazon. And, yeah. and by
0: the way, it makes a great gift. Pick up another six or seven copies. Yeah, definitely. Uh, question I ask everybody, you, and and this is I think good. But you've got a very a, a strong career in television, in network news, in food network. You've written a written a book. You're doing a radio show. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say in uh, your 68 years would you be your your greatest success?
1: Oh, diners certainly creating diners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no yeah. that that that. Uh... At the risk of sounding um, self-congratulatory, that's pretty much the biggest hit that network ever had. Um, And to some extent, it redefined how you you do food TV. So no, that that clearly that was my biggest success.
0: I I agree. I I don't know anybody who hasn't seen it. I mean, everybody has seen it. Everybody, uh, you know, if you turn on a show, if I have people over and I turn on a show, they all want to watch it. Nobody's bored by it. And, And there's always a great, meal on it you look at there have been times i've looked at and go i think i can make that
1: you you understand at least when i was doing the show every step and every ingredient was shown on tv yeah There was no nothing was glossed over it was it was legit yeah and everywhere
0: i've gone i got to tell you everywhere i've gone as a result some better than others but i've never had a bad meal i always go in and i go okay whatever they gave guy i want to try Right. And, yeah,
1: my experience was that most of the places kept up the standard, but a few cashed in and it wasn't wonderful. But for the most part, um, most of the places in my day seemed to continue at the standard that, that we had recorded on TV.
0: Yeah, oh, definitely. It was, it was great. Um, as far as uh, the next question, what would be
1: your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? uh my biggest failure was probably beer geeks uh i nearly went broke with it i Hmm. cared deeply about it tried to syndicate it tried to stream it um couldn't make it profitable uh Hmm. i'm very pleased with the show Hmm. but uh in some respects it i think it might be better than diners but couldn't make it viable Hmm. so that's a failure Mm.
0: You know, you mentioned streaming. Uh, you, so over the course of time, how much more difficult is it? Is it more difficult or is it easier now to get a show up and running with all of these different streaming services?
1: Um, uh, I'm not pitching TV shows anymore, but the fact of the matter is um, there is a great consolidation underway and whether it's streaming or cable there are fewer and fewer big operators controlling everything. So it's it's harder and harder to get on the air. Now, if you want to go the YouTube route, if you want to self fund and and put your stuff on YouTube and hope that perhaps someone sees it and wants to take it to a, uh, a lucrative platform, that's a way to go. But Discovery, for example, uh, you know, they bought scripts, which is food and HGTV. And they have done away with the industry standard practice. It used to be that if someone took a show from you, they paid the production costs up front. Discovery won't do it. All they do now is set you up with a preferred lender to loan you the money at, I don't know what the interest rate is. Um, mm. it's, it's become harder and harder for the little guy to, to play in the big sandbox.
0: Wow. Hmm. Um, so at some point, everybody passes away. Everybody has, uh, you know, they have a funeral, we hope, mm-hmm. and uh, someone gives a eulogy. What's the one thing that you would like to be said in your eulogy? He tried to be decent. Hmm. It's important. I think it's important to add that he tried, because we all have our, our faults. We, we have our sense.
1: moments. We have our ups. We have our downs. Um, I'm very f- proud of the fact that, When I had diners, we would hear from a lot of people who wanted like an autograph or something for a terminally ill child or, or other relative. Um, I would book those people and send them to a shoot to see guy. Mm. I wouldn't just send them an autograph. So, Mm. you know, that's, that's as good as I've tried to be. (laughs) And I've had my less than good moments.
0: Sure. Well, we all have, you know, I, that's another thing that I find really interesting. We had talked and just to kind of wrap this up. We talked about the left and the right and the, and the free speech issues. One of the things that I've I'm concerned about often is uh, this concept of, uh, of people being quote unquote canceled because I I just, I think about some of the things I've done in my life. I think about some of the things that I'm not proud of. Thank, thank God I was going through high school before the internet, you know, I (laughs) mean, yeah, um, I, you know, if, if YouTube were around when I was 15, 16 years old, I would probably have, been, <laughs> may not have there
1: been should, the there. Should be a rule that nothing you did before you were 18 can count against you. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're now, right. when a grown up Mel Gibson calls a female police officer sugar tits and claims that the Jews run the world, I'm okay not watching his movies.
0: Sure. Well, but, yeah. Yeah. But I'm talking
1: about when they're going back, you know,
0: 10, I, 15 years. Yeah. Ago. It, it, it,
1: before something. 18, let's just assume you were stupid. Sure. Okay, and there I just should be a stupid exemption for everything before the age of 18. Yeah, something. I think I, I think
0: my point, I guess, of what I'm trying to say is sometimes I think about if the worst thing I ever said or the worst thing I ever did was posted for the whole world to see. Oh, I would I would hope that people would have a little bit of mercy. And so I try to give try to give that same mercy. Now there are some people out there, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world get exactly what they need. They're exactly what they deserve, <laughs> you know. Um but there are some people out there that, you know, they say something bad, they say something wrong, and I and and they deserve to, you know, feel bad about it. But man, you know.
1: But see that it. that opens up a whole other conversation that I, I, I fear we don't have time for since Wow, we've been on for a while. Um, <laughs> how do you separate the artist from the art? That is, I mean, Bill yeah. Cosby, in my opinion, a disgusting criminal. Despite what the appeals court may have said, still is one of the um, most important comedians in the history of the genre. Do you mm-hmm. forget that? Do you? Ignore it? What do you do? Harvey That's a, White, that is a- That
0: is a great question and that is a conversation that i've had offline many times because yeah you know you can't forget all of the things that he did you know he had in his show he had therapists and people on there to assure that not one single negative Mm -hmm. uh, negative picture of black culture was put on his on his show Mm -hmm. i mean That's a level of care that none to that day at that point had had. He was the first person to paint, do a cartoon with the proper proportions for Mm -hmm. for black people.
1: No, it's, and and on the other hand, um, but he also rapes. Uh, It's like, oh, uh, what's his name? Polanski. Oh, Uh, yeah, Rosen, pardon me. Was Rosemary's Baby a lousy movie? No, it's a great movie. Is he a rapist? Yes. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh,
0: that's that's so that's so hard. One of my favorite movies of all time is Pulp Fiction, made by Miramax. So it's just well, like there you uh, go. You know, and he and know. Quentin Tarantino is one of my favorite directors of all time, and Harvey Weinstein was very instrumental in getting Quentin Tarantino where he is today, and you know it's it's a tough one because yeah i love i love art i love the movies i love music and then man some of those people are real bad
1: hey, <laughs> you look, know eric clapton is an extraordinary guitarist
0: mm-hmm.
1: he's also kind of a fascist
0: mm-hmm. if
1: if if you listen to him he's a racist um you know anyway that's a whole other conversation
0: it, it is well well listen um Mr. Page, I have really enjoyed talking to you. It's been really fascinating getting to know you. Um, And so uh, is there anything else that you think it's important for us to know about David Page? Important to know
1: about David Page? Um, I just want to be creative. That's it. Other people say at my age, why don't you retire? Why don't you go fishing? Why don't you play golf? My hobbies have always been the sorts of things I, I do for work. So there you go. And you
0: know, that old adage, if you, if you do it, if you work, or if you're doing what you love, you never work a day in your life. Right? Correct. So, awesome. Correct. Well, thank you, Mr. Page for coming on. Uh, if you've made it through the, the entire hour and a half here, please subscribe and, uh, and you know, let's uh, let's when you when you get uh, your next project going, as the syndication goes on, let's have you on again. I'd love to talk to I'd you. I'd love
1: again. to do. One of the nice things about journalism is you get to meet cool people. So let's stay in touch. Yeah. And thank you very much for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll we'll talk to you next time.
1: Take care.